Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. We have invited these four people here to to share their experience, strength, and hope on the topic of Life Happens. Our panelists will will be Liz kicking us, or I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm a mess up already. <laughs> We're going to have Thomas kick us off, then Liz, then Kelly, and finishing up with Bob. Um, so these panels are going to share for 10 to 15 minutes. I would like to thank our panelists for their service to Ikipaw, and I will pass with that and open up with Thomas. All right. Hi, my name is Thomas. I'm an alcoholic. We love you, Thomas. Lots and lots and Thank you. Um, wow. It's uh, it's wonderful to be here. Um, just to kind of start out, a couple of prerequisites. Uh, my sobriety date is December 5th of 2007. Um, and my home group is the Canton Young People's Group in Canton, Connecticut. It meets every Tuesday night at 7.30. If you're ever in Connecticut and you're looking for a good meeting, come check us out. Uh, we go out to dinner every Tuesday night after the meeting. So if I am in town, you will find me at that meeting. So um, It's interesting that I ended up on this panel when I spoke with Jeff on the phone originally, and he said, you know, tell me a little bit about your story and what panel can we put you on. I shared a couple of points, and he said, oh, we'll put you on a panel called Life Happens. And then the program came out, and I got to see the rest of the title of it. And I said, well, I don't know how much of that applies to me, you know, dealing with tragedy and, and depression and sobriety. And I've really done some thinking about it recently, and I thought about my story and the, and the parts, some of the highlights of it that, that I can think of. As I've kind of made this journey through Alcoholics Anonymous and sobriety, like, my definition of what tragedy is and what what I've had to deal with has changed a lot. Like in, in the first year of sobriety, I went, I got sober out in Los Angeles, and um, I remember, like, I went through some things then that at the time I thought were just like my life was over. You know, like some relationship stuff, and my company went bankrupt, and. Like, I just thought, like, it was the end of the world. Like, this was the worst thing that could happen to me possible. And my life was really kind of in shambles at one point while I was out there. And I had stayed sober, and I'd been through a number of things, and I was just like, I don't know what to do. And I got this call from the former, a former person I worked with, and they said, if you want a job, you got to move to Atlanta, like, next week. And so on a moment's notice, I moved, like, across the country, and I moved out to um, the Atlanta area. And I had lived there before in years past, and again, I kind of walked into these rooms, and I walked, I remember walking into some meetings in Atlanta, and um, I shared at a meeting about, and in my first week there, about just like, I'm new, I don't know what to do, and I'm scared, and like, I almost lost it, like, in that meeting. Because at that point, like, I didn't know if my life could really get any worse. Like, in that moment, it was just like, my relationship had ended, I lost my job, I was forced to move across the country away from my entire network, my sponsor wasn't calling me back, just like, at the time, like, that was the worst tragedy I'd really faced, and 
I found that the same things that I did when I first got sober, like those were the things that I had to do again. Like I, I talked in a meeting about this and all these guys came up and gave me their phone number and I had to call them the next day. Like I had to make that awkward first phone call that if you've ever called the sponsor for the first time where it's just like, hey, how are you doing? And you don't know what to talk about. I had to do that over and over and over again. So I was talking with these folks and they said to do the same things I did when I first came into the program. They're like, go to another meeting. Go get a service commitment. Go get involved. Go do these things. Even though I didn't want to. And I didn't, I certainly didn't do a lot of it with, um, a smile on my face. I didn't enjoy a lot of it. Some of it I didn't even know what I was doing. I had a sponsor. I got a new sponsor when I moved to Atlanta and he said, go get involved with Gikipod, the Georgia Young People's Conference. And I didn't know what that was. I'd never been to a young people's meeting or a young people's conference. And I had almost two years of sobriety at the time. And I went and took a position on this committee for a conference, and I didn't know what it was. And it was a great learning experience, and I, I got to um, be a part of that, and I'm still involved with um, conferences. But those are the things that when I've hit struggles and hard times in sobriety, no matter what they are, like it's getting back involved and taking some sort of action. The action's not always a big action. I don't always do it well. Um, oftentimes I... You know, I, I throw a temper tantrum and I pout and I yell and I'm just like, I don't want to do this stuff and I do it anyway. And, and I think that this program is all about, you know, doing the actions. It has no factor. It doesn't factor in that I believe in the actions. I just have to do them. When I've gone through it and I've seen this stuff, like, I know that doing the footwork is going to get me some results. I recently, um, I guess it was about a year, a little bit over a year ago, I moved to Connecticut. And it was another one of these kind of slipshot things where I got a call from work and they said, we need you in Connecticut. And I moved in like two weeks. And these are the kind of moments where, like, I'm living in a hotel in Connecticut looking for a place to live and I don't know anybody. And I go to the meetings and I realize, like, they're not doing AA right. And they're not, like, <laughs> yeah, I, think, I guess everybody else had that experience, too. It's just like I go in and I'm like... They're certainly like they don't know the right format. They're reading the wrong things. They're they're chanting at the wrong parts. They say the Lord's Prayer wrong. And I had like a terrible experience getting connected in Alcoholics Anonymous when I moved this last time. And it was, I, I'm sure it had mostly to do with me, but I went to these meetings and I just couldn't connect with people. And, and I would make phone calls and I did the basics and I called people and it felt like nobody would call me back, and I was traveling for work all the time, and I was all over Florida, and I was all over the East Coast, and, like, the hours that I was working when I was on the road was, like, 8 a.m. to, like, 8.30 p.m., so it was, like, tough to get to meetings, and I remember sitting on the the patio of this condo that my company had put me up in, in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, and it was, like, this gorgeous view, and it's, like, 8 o'clock in the morning, and I'm looking out over the ocean, and I called a buddy of mine in Atlanta and I said, like, I'm losing it. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't have any friends in Connecticut. I don't, like, I, I don't live, like, I don't feel like I've got a, like, a home base. Like, I don't have a home group because I just moved up there and then I went on the road. And we started talking and, and I just kind of dumped on him and I, I was telling him about how, like, one more time it was spiraling out and I wasn't thinking about drinking, but I was just kind of, like, done. Like, I just kind of, I was, I was done trying to connect and I was done trying to go to meetings and, the people that I did know, I didn't really like, and I didn't like the way they did AA. And I remember that he said, and I said, I can't, like, I'm on the road, and I don't know what to do. And he told me something that, that still sticks with me. Like, every day I think about this. He was just like, 
AA is not about like how many meetings you go to or how many alcoholics you talk to today. It's like, are you doing this program? And he brought me back to the fact that Alcoholics Anonymous is about doing the steps and trying to apply them in my life today. That it doesn't matter if I go to a meeting today or tomorrow or next week or whenever. It doesn't matter if like I get a chance to talk to my sponsor, like that I can be okay trying and attempting to, you know, read the literature in the morning and doing the steps and working through that and really working on my connection with my higher power. And for a couple of weeks there before I could get back to Connecticut and get, you know, stable again, that's what I did. Like I, I recommitted to to getting up every day and you know, reading some literature and, you know, um, trying to call a couple of people and trying to apply the steps and looking at, like, where in my day can I be of service? You know, who can I help today, whether they're in the program or not, whether I get to a meeting or not? And, and it kind of brought me out of that funk. And when I went back to Connecticut, I tried some different meetings and I found a home group. And I, I, I remember walking into my current home group that first time I walked in and some guy came up to me. He goes, I've never seen you here before. Like, my name's whatever. And, you know, we go out to dinner after this. Like, you should come out. And it was that moment where I was just like, oh, this is the group for me. Like, with everybody in this room, like, he noticed that I'd never been here before. It didn't matter that I had a couple of years of sobriety or whether or not I was new. Like, he just, he'd never seen me before, so he was going to invite me out to dinner. And that stuck out to me as, like, that's the kind of sobriety I want to have, that it doesn't matter what's going on or what's happening with me, that if I see a new face, am I willing to go up and invite them to come be a part of? Because that's what people did for me. Um, let's see what time am I at. I I recently went through something that, um, I don't know if I would call it tragedy or depression, but I kind of got in one of those funks again. I had, um, I had to go see a doctor, and I had this surgery that was unexpected, and it kind of laid me out. And I was, I was stuck at home for like two weeks, and I couldn't go to work, and I was in a ton of pain. And it was one of those things where, like, I learned a new respect for, like, the power of the phone call and the power of the people in this program. Because when, like, I couldn't get to a meeting and I didn't want to call people, like, they called me. Like, that they they didn't see me at the meeting. They didn't see me at my home group. So people called me to say, hey, where you been? We miss you. What's going on? And, and even though, like, it wasn't really in a place where people could come visit me or, or be a part like that, like, they went out of their way to call me and to make sure that I was a part of. And I've recently, like, in the last few days, just prior to coming out here, like, has been when I've finally gotten a chance to get back out and, and go, go to, you know, go to a couple of meetings and be a part of and, and show up. And I saw, like, I saw my buddy Chase the other day, like, and when I walked up here and I was just like, I forget, like, how many people I have, like, in this program everywhere. Like, it doesn't matter, like, what's going on with me or where I'm at that, if I want to do this thing and I'm willing to get involved and, like, be a part of, like, I can call anybody anywhere. Like, I've been in cities that I didn't know a soul and just called the intergroup office and showed up at a meeting and people took me out to dinner and I hung out all night. That this program, again, is really about just a little bit of willingness and a little bit of action. And no matter what's going on in my life, that's not really relevant. That I can reach out and take an action that's going to change the way I feel. It's not always quick, and I always do it right. Like, I've certainly made, like, all those mistakes in the program that we talk about. Like, all those things you're not supposed to do in the first couple of years. Like, I did all of them. And um, I, I did some of this stuff. I remember the first time I did the steps, I did it because I wanted to stay in this relationship. And and that was, like, she was into the steps, and she was new, and I had, like, six months. But, like, it was that match made in heaven. So I'm like, if she's doing the steps, I'm doing the steps. And I had an experience that... It's not relevant why we do this thing, that if we take the actions that are outlined in the book and we take the actions that are outlined in our literature, 
that I get a result. You know, my experience is that I don't have to do it right and I don't have to do it perfect and, and I don't have to do it, you know, your way. I just have to do it. And when I get through those things, like, I get to the other side and every experience I've had so far just about, like, I've been able to share with somebody that there's been some guy that's come up to me or that I've heard at a meeting that said, I'm going through this thing and I can go up and I'm like, I've been there. I've done that thing. And I never expected that was going to be the case for me. Um, so I, I wasn't really sure what I was going to talk about today. So I hope this is kind of close to the topic. Um, but with that, I will turn it over to our next um, speaker. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm Liz. I'm an alcoholic. That's awesome. Um, oh, okay, so I totally have a whole bunch of stuff that I can say on the topic of this panel. Um, so I'll start with the fact that uh, I got my sobriety date is August 27th of 2001. Um, yeah, class of 2001. Anybody? Yeah. Okay. Um, I I got sober when I was 15 years old. Um, I'm 27 now. And, uh, so, so I've gone through the majority of my cognitive life really sober in AA. And, um, so there's, there's been a lot, there's been a lot of stuff that's happened, but I'll tell you the reason I got asked to speak on this panel, this is a true story. I was at, uh, the four corner, well, I was at the four corner summit in, uh, that was at Lake Havasu and, uh, yeah. And I'm the girl who broke her back, if anybody was there and remembers that. I broke my back at the, um, yeah, this was two months ago. Um, I just got out of my back brace uh, two weeks ago. Um, yeah, woo, I can woo. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it was a kind of silly car accident, but um, it wasn't even when I was jumping off the cliffs into the lake, which would have been much cooler. But... Um, no, of course. It was just like accidentally going over a jump in a car. Um, yeah, true story. True. The car wasn't even hurt. Like it was kind of lame. Um, but I ended up with compression fractures in two vertebrae. Um, when one, my L1 was almost uh, 50% compressed and, uh, my L2 was like 20 to 30% compressed. And I'm me and I'm really stubborn and, Nobody else seemed to be that hurt, so I was, I laid on the ground at the campground, at the campsite for like five hours before I went to the hospital. <laughs> Cause I'm ridiculous. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, so, but I ended up going and, um, then this wonderful girl who's here somewhere, I, I saw her walk in, but she like came and checked out my back and, uh, took me, took me to the ER. And, and then, uh, they decided they needed to medevac me to Phoenix here. And, uh, so wonderful little, wonderful Rainy. I was totally knocked out on drugs. I don't remember like a second of this flight, but Rainy does. And, uh, it was a tiny little plane and they, they flew me out here to Phoenix. Um, I woke up in the ICU and I was here for like five days and, um, Luckily, at this, at that point, I had been sober, um, 
I've been sober for a while, and I've I've been involved in young people's service since since I was like 17. Um, I got sober in at one of those weird emotional growth boarding schools in Montana. Um, first I was in Utah, and then I was in Montana, and then uh, yeah, so I started doing young people stuff when I was 17 in 2004, um, and then I. So I, I've been I've been involved in this stuff forever, and I've slowly developed this network of people. And I found that when I was here in Phoenix, like I vaguely know a couple people here, but a whole bunch of people that I do know in other cities made a bunch of phone calls to people who live here in Phoenix. And I and I wake up in the ICU, and they're like these people that I don't really know, <laughs> that are there to like talk to me and bring me meetings and cheer me up and like bringing me magazines and um and teddy bears and like. Actually, it was like a dog with bunny ears. It was kind of weird, but it was awesome. I still have it. Um, and and so all of that happened. Um, and so one of the people that came in, this is a long story to get to why I'm here, but uh, one of the people that ended up coming in was Jeff, who's the program chair of this of this icky pot, and he was like, oh, hey, you want to speak on a panel called Life Happened? As, a, as I'm laying there with a broken back, I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, like, yeah, you know, that actually works because exactly two years ago, I was thrown off a horse into a tree and broke my face and my collarbone and tore my ACL in my right knee 12 days after I decided to move to Hawaii, um, right? So I, yes, I've been through a fair amount of things and I've had to do, I've had to do, you know, the the pain pills sober, which sucks. It's not fun. And I, with my broken back, I it was different than... I was actually on the Icky Paw host committee in San Francisco, if you guys were there. But, um, yeah. Um, and it was funny because that was like a little bit after my first accident. And we, we were kind of trying to, I was deciding when I was going to have my knee surgery. And we were like, okay, so should I have my, should I have my knee surgery when I still can't use crutches? And then I can get like a little go-kart thing and like herd the smokers around. Like, <laughs> and, uh, so we, we kind of joked about that, but that didn't happen. Um, so, and, but anyway, so all this stuff has kind of happened in the last couple years. Um, and it's funny because I went the first nine and a half years of my sobriety being like really, really stringent, um, not even taking cough and cold medicine when I'm sick because I, I used to like, I'm one of those people that stole like the Coracetin out of the Safeway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're my people. Um, and and like I would, I would get high in the in the group home that I was living at because I was like running away from home. I was one of I was one of those genius kids that was like punching myself in the face trying to get myself trying to convince CPS that my child my parents abused me so I could get emancipated and do as many drugs as I wanted. That was like my grand master plan. And the funny thing about that is that my parents are both therapists. Like my dad is a psychiatrist and my mom is a therapist. My dad was president of the California Addiction Medicine Society. Like not that many people believe that shit. It was it was, it was not working out for me. But um, so I ended up in Utah, <laughs> like kidnapped in the middle of the night, and I was sleeping naked. It was super awkward. But um, but here's here's the thing. Here's the thing about getting sober super young. Like I got sober at 15 years old. Okay. Because, yes, I've had these, like, kind of dramatic things happen where I've I've had to be out of work, had to be on disability. Um, I still haven't gone back to work since breaking my back. Um, 
I'm working, I'm getting a settlement from my friend who was driving his car insurance. Like there's, there's all this stuff that happens around that. But one of the craziest things about getting sober when you're super young is that you grow up. Whoa. Right. Um, and for me, like I, I, you know, one of the promises says that we use, we learn how to handle situations which used to baffle us. And uh, my experience has repeatedly been that I've learned how to handle situations that I've never been in before. Because um, I'd never had, like, a credit card, you know. Um, I never, like, had an apartment. I'd never had, you know, a job. <laughs> um, and so there, there's all... And the other side of that is that, like, I had no idea what my character defects were going to look like as an adult. Like, I could do as thorough of, of a, of a four-step as I wanted to at 15, 16. And that it's... Like, that still doesn't really give you an indication of, like, oh, this is what's going to happen when you have to handle your own finances, or this is what's going to happen in your first long-term relationship. Um, this is how you're going to react to this kind of pain. And so I've had to go through a lot of things, um, learning about myself and my character defects sober, like letting myself be human, letting my character defects develop um, like they're supposed to when you're in your late teens, early 20s. Like, we're supposed to learn about our character defects during that period of your life. That's normal. Um, so I, one of the things that I found out about myself is that, uh, when I get, when I'm in a lot of pain, I, I get self-destructive, like, whoa, but I, I mean, I'm sure nobody relates to that, but there, there was this, there was this point where I, um, I had five years sober. I was 20 years old. Um, I was living in Los Angeles at the time going to school and, um, I had, I had broken up with my, the guy that I'd been engaged to and been with for three years. And I had pretty much been like, all right, um, I can't drink. And he, he had gotten another girlfriend and which was not my plan when I broke up with him. Like my plan was that he was going to be single and sober for a while. And then we were going to get back together. Um, but that didn't, that didn't pan out. Um, he got another girlfriend who he ended up marrying, which is awesome. Like he's super happy, but you know, there was, um, it, at the time it was super painful. This is like six years ago now. So I really don't care anymore, but at the time it was really painful. And, uh, and so I couldn't drink. I had five years sober. I was like, I can't drink. I can't, I can't do drugs. Um, I, I, I wanted to like self-harm in some way. Um, but I'm like, I can't do that. That's super unsober. And I have five years and I like had this huge ego about having five years. Right. Cause everybody says you're a newcomer till you're five. And so I'm like, I'm not a newcomer anymore. I can't like hurt myself. That'd be super lame. So what I ended up doing, and this is true is, um, I found a guy who would hurt me and there you go. There's your character, learning about your character defects when you're uh, 20 years old in the program. And I, and I found myself in an abusive relationship with five years sober at 20 years old. And I can tell you exactly the way that I got out of it was I did a fourth step and I did a fifth step. And when I didn't feel better after doing the fifth step, I went back and looked at the inventory that I had done and realized that I hadn't been honest with myself. And, uh, and so I jumped in my car. I drove back home to my grand sponsor's house and my sponsor's house because they lived next to each other. It was like a compound. It was the coolest thing ever. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was, it was like literally a bridge going over the creek between those two houses. It was rad. Um, so I went up there and I did, I did a pros and cons list and I started talking about what was happening and I showed, I showed a couple of people the bruises that were, that were on my ribs that I had been hiding and I, um, and I, uh, and I realized I can't go back down there. 
And so I went back down with the U-Haul the next day or the next weekend with my dad and we packed up all my stuff and I moved back home to San Francisco and, and I didn't go back. And I can tell you that for a period of three and a half years, I didn't, I didn't tell anybody the details of what happened. I didn't tell anybody. Um, I thought I was going to take some of that stuff to my grave and that's with like five to seven and a half years sober. Um, it, it just, it's some of the things seemed absolutely unspeakable to me. Um, like those were not things that I could ever tell anybody and have them look at me the same way. Um, even though that they were things that like had been kind of done to me, right? Like, like physical and sexual abuse, like you're not, I put myself in the situation though. So I felt like responsible and, um, I ended up, I ended up finally starting to talk about it and, um, and like things because of another because, you know, I found awesome ways to distract myself in the meantime while I was, uh, while I was trying to avoid that, that thing. And, um, and so, so things just kind of rolled forward and I slowly started talking about it. And I, this whole time, you guys, I never stopped sponsoring people. I never stopped being sponsored and I never stopped going to meetings and I never stopped having commitments. I never started, stopped being, I was, I was secretary of ACIPA, the All California Young People's Conference, um, in 2011. Holla. And, uh, then I, then I was, uh, Kevin, who was our chair for Ikipaw in San Francisco, called me co-everything, um, for our Ikipaw because I just, I wasn't working and I helped with everything. Um, and then I, I've just kind of run around and, and found that there are so many bigger plans for me than I ever perceived. Like, I was pissed off that I wasn't voted on to the Akipod Advisory Council, which is why I decided to move to Hawaii, because I was like, fuck California if they're not gonna, you know, um, a true story. And then, and then 12 days after I'd moved to California, I was thrown off a horse into a tree and broke my face and had to come home. And, um, and then it's crazy because like, what, a couple years later, I get involved with starting this new conference. That's, if you guys haven't heard about it, it's, it's for the Southwest region of the United States, like some, like Utah, uh, Colorado, Arizona, um, New Mexico, some of these states don't have like a, the kind of conference that we have in California every year where it's like huge. And, uh, and so it's starting a conference for those guys. And I got, I got elected onto that advisory council and then they elected me chair. And, uh, and so I've been super involved in that for, for the last six months. And it's like, you know, I had this idea of what, what I was supposed to be. I wanted to be on ACIPAW advisory since I was 17, but then it's like, wait, but God has these bigger plans like always. And sometimes it involves like being smacked against a horse, a tree from a horse. And the other part of that, you guys, that I'll just tell you because I have to shut up real quick, is uh, being thrown off the horse into the tree ended up giving me diabetes. True story. Like physical trauma can cause diabetes, especially in women. It triggered diabetes, and so then I became diabetic. Like it was crazy. Um, just think, think, my life is like a series of jokes in a weird way, you know. But like it, it, what's so weird about it is that as long as I trust and I just keep going, like my experience has been that everything always works out. Like there's always some bigger purpose to everything. Every single little thing that I've gone through, I've been able to use to be of service to somebody else. Um, and so I, I've just kind of taken to like just going with things now. Like, all right, I meet these people. Like, I love you guys. I'm going to totally like be in your life now. And, uh, I love these people. I'm going to be in your life now too. And like, just, I roll with things and I go with where, where God puts me and I try to do the best that I can. And, um, 
you know, it'd be really super easy to fall, fall into a depression. And there, there are moments when I do, and ladies, especially when I'm around my period, I know you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> sorry guys. I know, not a woman's panel, but whatever. Um, this, uh, you know, you just keep, my, the solution I found is really that you just make your feelings irrelevant to the way that you act. Like, my feelings are irrelevant to where my feet go. When I want, when I want to just stay in bed, um, when I'm feeling miserable, when I don't, when I'm still, when I'm embarrassed to call people for rides because I can't drive because I have a broken back, which is retarded, but like, so that's still within my brain works, or I don't want to go out because I think my back brace that I have to wear makes me look fat, which is really lame. <laughs> but I actually said that to somebody and they all just laughed at me. Um, I don't know. I'm not afraid to say the things that are in my head that are a little bit crazy because it's just entertaining. Like, and half the time I don't really mean it as soon as it's out of my mouth anyway. And I'm like, Oh, that was funny. Like, all right, now I can move on. Um, but you know, it's, it's all just life and we're all, we're all here. And I love, love young people's AA. Like this is, this is my spiritual home, you know? And I, uh, we talk, we talk about home groups, but I, I consider like all of young people's AA to be like, like you guys are my home. Um, you guys took care of me when I've, when I've been in hospitals away from home in states that I didn't really know anybody. You guys showed up and, um, oh, it's awesome. Just like I always say this, but the big book, they wrote it when they had four and a half years and they sell this shit short. Um, the, 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 what you can get out of continuing to come to AA and the kind of fellowship that you can grow and the kind of, um, relationships that you could have even when they're messed up and you piss each other off and then you like make up later and everything's cool is like those it's none of it really matters in the end like I just had a friend die a week ago and I went to Salt Lake City and was part of this funeral procession and we these guys organized like 27 motorcycles to go in front of the hearse and it was the most beautiful fucking thing like the amount of love that is in these rooms and between people is just insane and like that's that's everything in life and this is the thing i'll end on this is what i'm gonna end on i can tell you that um that first accident i was in when i was thrown from the horse into the tree um i i had this moment where um after they once again i told them that they weren't allowed to give me any pain medication until they scanned my my face and they actually told me that my face was broken. I was like, okay, fine. I'll take something. Um, but what I love YPA. That's it right there. All right. Um, so what, what happened, my experience was that I, um, I'd always, ima- when I realized how close I had been to dying, like, cause I hit the tree right here. I mean, just an inch further, it would have been my temple. Um, when I realized how close I had been to dying, I, instead of thinking like, oh, there are all these people, like these things that I didn't say to somebody or, um, things that I wanted to do that I didn't do, like that was not my experience at all. My experience was that I, I sat there and I was like, you know what? If I had died, I'd be really fucking happy with my life the way that I've lived it. I haven't done everything that I wanted to do. I haven't achieved everything that I wanted to achieve. But if, if I had died that day, like I would, I would have been very content with my life. Everybody that I love knows that I love them. A couple people that I hated at the time knew that I hated them, and that meant a lot to me too. <laughs> and, uh, 
but it was all like I just knew I just knew that everything was okay. Like I had done everything that I wanted to do and I was happy. Um and so I I didn't have to seek anymore. I didn't have to run around looking for anything anymore. It doesn't mean that I don't still, but um like you could that can be achieved and it's amazing. So just stick around and keep going and doing stuff because it gets weird and then it gets cool and then it gets weird again and then you're here and shit's awesome. So keep around. Thanks. I'm Kelly and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. back at you. Thanks for being here. Um, I'd like to thank everybody on the committee for working so hard. Um, it's an honor to be here today and to be a part of this. I heard somebody say in a meeting that um, we're in the business of saving lives. And uh, like, try putting that on your resume, you know. Um, uh, so let's see. Uh, I'm from Phoenix. And uh, right. And um, my sobriety date is March 3rd of 2000. Uh, I have a sponsor, sponsees, uh, H&I commitment. Still go to meetings, and I practice prayer and meditation on the daily. And that's what I did when I first got sober, and that's what still works for me today. Um, I, um, I was asked to share on this topic, and uh, I feel that I'm a little bit qualified. Um, I... I've had a, a lot of great times in sobriety, and I've also had my fair share of struggles. And, um, you know, one of my favorite quotes is, life is a beautiful struggle, and it certainly is. I um, had my first experience with life happening when I was 12 years old, and I had an older brother who was one of us. And he was causing a lot of chaos in our house, and my parents didn't know what to do anymore, and they made him leave. And three days later we got a phone call that he died. And I felt like somebody had like pulled the rug out from underneath me. And I felt betrayed by God. And I became a real angry lost kid. And, you know, to to lose your faith, you know, that's like a really big deal. I felt like everything that I had been taught to believe as a kid was um, was a lie. And shortly thereafter... I discovered alcohol, and I found that um, I experienced that ease and comfort that it talks about in the book, and it became my solution, and why wouldn't I continue to do it? And, and I think the first half of my life, I spent running from feelings, fear, and pain, and then this last half of my life, I've learned how to walk through difficulties, and um, I learned that in this program. And so, you know, it wasn't all the consequences that got me here. You know, it wasn't getting beat up or being homeless or going to jail or watching my friends die. It was the simple fact that no matter what I put into my body or how much, it it didn't take away the fear and the pain anymore. Like, it stopped working. And when my only solution that I had relied upon for most of my life wasn't working, I knew that I had two choices. It was either die or it was 
do something different. And by God's grace, like I made it into these rooms and God's grace kept me here long enough, you know, and I was willing to do the work. And, you know, early sobriety is not easy. I, I hope to never have to do that again. Um, you know, like trying to find a job when you're totally unemployable, you know, getting um, transportation, paying off fines, turning yourself in and facing charges that you had when you were out there. And um, somehow, though, I, I just made it through. And I guess like when you're coming off of being homeless, like these little challenges, they didn't seem to be really that big of a deal. I was just so grateful to be free and to have a little bit of hope. And Believe me, like that wore, that wore off. Um, as soon as I got more sober, you know, I forgot what it was like to be out there. Um, but, you know, I, I, uh, remember one of the first meetings that I went to, there was a lady who got up and, uh, shared at the podium and her partner of like 18 years had just died that week. And, she, you know, she was crying and, um, she was in a lot of pain. And I remember she said two things. She said, you know, I don't have to drink over this and I never have to be alone. And that really like struck me. And I have thought back to that meeting and what she said many times throughout um, my sobriety. Um, you know, one of the, the difficult things that I've had to face uh, was that about six years sober, I decided to seek treatment for hep C and I went through 11 months of interferon treatment. And it's kind of like a, a light form of chemotherapy, and I was so sick. Like, the side effects were brutal. And every day was like a struggle just to get up, sometimes just to walk across the room. And there was nothing that anybody in my life could do to change that, to make it any better or easier. And I really had to, like, lean into God. And I had to pray. And I just asked, you know, for God just to get me through one more day of this because every day I wanted to quit the treatment. You know, and as hard as that was, when I got to the other side of it, something inside of me had changed. I felt like I could do anything. I felt um, like I had some confidence. And that fear that had plagued me, you know, the first part of my sobriety kind of slipped away. And it gave me the courage to dream bigger and to do things that I was afraid to do. And uh, I went back to school. And the other thing that that it gave me is it gave me a lot of compassion for other people, like being sick for that long. And it also has allowed me over the years to, like, share that experience with other people, like a real deep connection. And um, And a lot of people come to me and ask me about that, you know, when they're going through the same thing or someone they love has had to go through the same thing. So, you know, it, it changed my life and it's a blessing. It's all about, um, how I look at pain. You know, I can either run from it or I can embrace it. And pain equals growth. And it's made me, um, a stronger person for sure. And it gives me things to like look back on. Oh yeah, I walked through that. I walked through that. Like I can get through this. And, um, you know, one of the other things that happened is, uh, at nine years, I went through a midlife crisis and, um, I walked away from a relationship that I had been in for almost nine years. And I, you know, 
walked away from a house that we built and a life that we built together and pets and all the stuff you collect together. And it was a really, really dark time in my sobriety. And it was like I wanted to kill myself, you know, and I had to say, like, I'm, I'm almost 10 years sober and I'm really crazy. I need some help. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I really had to break before I could get serious again because I had been very self-reliant and I got complacent with this program. And it made me have to ask for help and it got me super motivated to do the work again. And, and it's been an amazing journey ever since then. You know, recovery has remained a forefront in my life. Like nothing comes before it because I almost lost it. I almost died and God just wasn't done with me yet. Like I still have more work to do here. And, um, you know, I also had to learn how to date in sobriety because I was in a long-term relationship. Um, and so that's created a lot of opportunities for growth. (laughs) And, um, and so, um, you know, when I was about 11 years sober, um, things were like super good in my life. I had been asked to share at a retreat a women's retreat on uh, 10 and 11. And I went to the workshops and I was like, I had nothing to write down. I'm like, things are too good. You know, I didn't have any, um, like, unmanageability and powerlessness in my life. I didn't have any resentments. No uh, character defects were really cropping up at that time because I was single. And, um, <laughs> and, and the only thing that I wrote down was uh, I'm afraid of my parents getting older and they get sick and my life's going to change. Because I know, like, I am a selfish bastard. And um, and a week later, my mother called me on my parents' 40, 42nd anniversary, and she said, your father and I need to come talk to you. And I was like, okay, something's up. And I, I met them in the parking lot of where we were going to eat, and um, my mom said, your father's been diagnosed with lung and liver cancer. And I was like, oh. I totally manifested this. Like, this is exactly what I wrote down. Like, my biggest fear is now coming true. And I made a commitment to go take care of my dad every Tuesday night from that moment on. And that first ride out to my parents' house, and they live far from where I live, you know, I just, like, I just cried, and I just asked God. Like, I invited God in. Because I didn't know what to say. Like, what do I say? How do I act? What do I do? And um, And I just got to show up. And, like, you guys taught me how to do that. And, uh, you know, I remember pushing my dad through the VA in his wheelchair because he was too sick to walk. And I was like, I'm so grateful that I get to do this, that I get to show up today. And, um, you know, it wasn't that I was feeling sorry for myself or angry at God. I saw, like, the blessing in it, that I got to find out that I can show up. And... um it's still emotional for me, but, uh, I, um, you know, I got through that and, you know, my dad, you know, the other thing is, is like, I also saw how, how lucky I was that my dad got to see me like have, you know, a good amount of sobriety. A lot of people I know, like their parents died before they got to see them sober. And, um, so my father got to die knowing that I was going to be okay, knowing that I could show up and take care of my mom. And uh, and he had some peace about that. And so, you know, watching my father, you know, get so sick and um, struggle 
you know, it was difficult, probably one of the most difficult things I've had to walk through. But taking care of my mother after all of this has been, like, even more difficult because I'm powerless over her pain. And, uh, again, all I get to do is show up. And I know that God has her and um, and uh, that it will be okay. So, you know, everything that I've gone through in my sobriety, like, prepared me for that. And um, I owe it all to the people that came before me, you know, because I've seen a lot of people walk through very difficult things. And they didn't have to pick up, you know, and I never once, like, wanted to get drunk, you know. My family asked me to throw away all the morphine after my father passed away. Like, I'm the alcoholic in the family, and they're all normal, and they're asking me to, like, get rid of pain meds. And and I didn't even think, like, to use them, let alone I could make money and sell them. You know? Like, I got rid of them the way that hospice asked us to get rid of them. So, um, you know, it's... I just try to look at pain as a different, in a different way. Like I get to change my perspective. I get to change the way that I that I deal with it. And um, I'm never alone, and I don't ever have to drink again, no matter what. You know, I have to lean into God, and I have to ask for help. And you know, I just keep showing up. And so, um, I'm grateful to be here today. This is awesome. And with that, I'll pass. I'm Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. It's worth it just for that, man. Uh, I'm really grateful to be here today uh, um, and, and to hear the other speakers uh got a, a lot out of that, and, you know, I want to quickly say I was, uh, my sobriety date's March 7th of 87, uh, so you don't have to count, that's 26 years. I was 22 years old when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous uh, and stayed sober. I was actually 18 when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, took me a little while to get it. Um, I have a sponsor who walked in the back of the room. I didn't know he was going to be here today, so it's got to, I, I got to make sure I say the right, be, just be honest, right? And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, I've had a beautiful night, you know, listening to Nick and, and, and seeing all your faces, uh, and I know, you know, why I was chosen to speak here. If you've heard my, I don't know if you've, you know, some of you may have heard my story, uh, may have not, uh, you know, I, getting sober at 22, you stay sober a few years, 26 years, 25 years. Life happens. It just does. There are some things that, you know, I'm grateful that I didn't know were going to happen to me, and there's some things that uh, that uh, that I prayed for to happen that didn't happen that I'm extremely grateful for, too, you know. Uh, just to get straight to the point, uh, you know, you were... Talking about your inventory, and when I when I did my first four step, you know, the my fear list, my the 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 top fear I had on every inventory I've ever done was to lose one of my children. 
And uh, from my first one on, every time that was my biggest fear. I couldn't imagine how I would cope with that if that were to ever happen. And uh, on May 5th, 2011, I found out. My eldest son, Brandon, uh, had been coming around these rooms and had given this thing a shot and did the best he could to, to try to stay sober and, and uh, ultimately chose to make the supreme sacrifice and uh, hung himself that night. I remember on the night before, May 4th, uh, about midnight, uh, I was laying in bed with my wife and and I just woke up out of a dead sleep, you know, and, and I felt like something was wrong. And uh, she looked at me and, and asked me what was wrong, kind of scared her. And, and I just knew, you know, I said, something's wrong with one of my babies. Something's not right. And uh, the next morning I got up and was meditating and, and praying in my office and sitting there and, and uh, had some work to get to. And my phone started to blow up. And uh, text after text after text started coming in, and people were trying to call me. And I, uh, and all the text would say was, "Are you okay?" And I hadn't gotten the news yet, but I knew something was wrong. And uh, I made a call, and I got a hold of his some of my family, and I found out what had happened. And uh, it's the greatest pain I've ever had in my life. Uh, I don't remember anything really from those first few moments other than falling to the floor and it was a, it was a pain that was so painful that I thought I would, wouldn't make it through the pain, or that, that the pain itself would kill me. And, uh, as I laid on the floor crying, the front door opened and there stood two alcoholics. And my wife came through the back door and she hugged me and lifted me up, and those two alcoholics put their arms around me, and they, they hugged me, and, and, uh, and I, you know, went to go start, uh, to see his mother, and we, we had divorced, uh, when he was very young, and, and while I was still drinking, and, uh, you know, I, I, uh, by that afternoon, my house was full, of alcoholics. There wasn't a room you could go into. You could try to go into a bedroom and there'd be alcoholics in a little group in there. You could go into the living room and there'd be a group of alcoholics there. You could go into the, the, the dining room and there'd be a, a, a pot of coffee on and a bunch of alcoholics there. I just can't get away from you guys. And uh, I live in Winslow, Arizona. And uh, we don't have a lot of meetings. Uh, if you're in a in a place where you can get to meetings on a regular basis at noon, early birds, you know, all these different meetings. We don't have that many meetings. We have one meeting a day at 8 o'clock. And it was four. And uh, all my boys were there, and I said, you know what, man, I can't make it till 8. Load me up and get me to Flagstaff, because there's a meeting in Flagstaff at 6. Get me to Flagstaff. And uh, it, it, it was almost presidential. One of the guys I sponsor has this big black Suburban, and we were in the lead car. 
And we took off to Flagstaff, and I'm crying and screaming on the way over there, and I, I just, you know, uh, my brothers were there with me. My brothers were there with me. I walk into this meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we're sitting there, and, you know, they do the newcomer thing. They ask if there's any newcomers, and the first guy that stands up is this kid, and he says, my name is Brandon. And there was a little bit of glimpse of hope that day when I heard that. I didn't believe that that was a coincidence that I walked in there and that kid, the newcomer, the first newcomer that stands up in that meeting after losing my Brandon's and his name Brandon. And uh, over the next few days, you know, the funeral happened and, and uh, you know, it was such a blur. But uh, at the end of that, you know, there's that time after all those things are taken care of when you're sitting at home and everybody's gone and your relatives have gone home and they have to get back to their life and your friends have gone and they've got to go back to their life. And there's that moment when you're sitting alone in that house and, and, uh, and it's just you. And you realize, you start to, to realize the scope of what's happened. And, uh, at that time, I had this guy that, uh, claimed, so he can get his name on here. <laughs> he sat, he came to my house and he told me he had his, you know, he was fortunate, he had his own business and he could take as much time as he wanted to. And he came out on, I have a little deck in my backyard and I sit there and that's my meditation place, you know? And I was sitting out there and he came and knocked on the door and my wife showed him where I, told him where I was at and he came out there and he sat next to me and, and he said, brother, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know what, what I can do here, but I'm here. And I'm here until you tell me to go home. I'll be here every morning. I'll be here till night. If you want to go to a meeting, if you want to talk, if you want to pray, if you want to sit down and just be quiet, I'm here. And I'm not going anywhere. And you tell me when to go. And he stayed with me for the next 10 days. Unbelievable. I never had anybody when I was out there say, Bob, I'm here. Long after that bottle's empty and that dope is gone, well, I'm going to stay here with you. I'm here to support you through this depression. Never happened. But here's Clay and he's staying with me, you know? At that time when he was getting ready to leave and as he's giving me a hug, he's going back home, he, he looks at me and he says, I, don't, I hate to bring this up, but you were booked to speak next weekend. And uh, he says, uh, I understand if you need to cancel. Totally understandable. We'll reschedule it. And uh, I said, hold on. Let me think about it. I said, let me pray about it, is what I said, actually. So, uh, you know, that morning, next morning I got up to do my meditation and I start to say the prayer, right? I start to say the prayer to God. God, should I go speak? Should I go somewhere where somebody's suffering from alcoholism and possibly die? Should I go there? <laughs> Regardless of how much pain I'm in at the time and, and how, you know, legitimately self-centered I am at this moment, God, should I keep being of service? Uh, I'm joking because I never got those words out. 
because I knew the answer already. I went to that meeting and I spoke that night, and his brother was there for the first time. He had never heard me speak. We had grown up together. He had a son named Brandon also. They were both two weeks away from their birthday. A month later, this guy calls me up and tells me he lost his Brandon the same way. And he had been at that meeting that night. And what I do when I don't know what to do is I do what I know. Let me say that again. What I do when I don't know what to do is I do what I know. What I know to do is when it's hitting the fan is get my butt to a meeting. What I know when it's hitting the fan is call my sponsor. What I know what, what to do is help other people. Is to work intensively with another alcoholic. That's what I know to do when it's hitting the fan. When I don't know what to do. That's what I do. And I did that. And... uh you know, one of the reasons I'm so excited to be here is I, I, I met, I've met Nick, you know, uh, the speaker last night and I, I got started, I've, I've made all these new young friends, really young friends. Like, we got 20 years difference between us, you know? And, uh, I got kind of tired of hanging out with the old farts. And you guys energize me like you don't know. When I see your faces just last night watching all of you, I love to just sit back and watch. When I see the joy and I hear that chatter, it's like a symphony, you know? It's that sound I heard when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that sound, I didn't understand it, but I, it made me feel like I was going to be okay. And I fell in love with that sound. And every time I come around these rooms, I hear that same sound. And I see people laughing. And I see people happy. And I know I'm in the right place and it's going to be okay. We're going to be all right. And uh, I heard that last night. And uh, I've just done, you know, what I was taught to do in the very beginning. And, and I want to, you know, end this here real quick. But... Uh, Nobody took me when I got 10 years or 15 years or 20 years or 25 years. They didn't take me to a separate room and they didn't say, hey, dude, guess what? We got this other book. It's not as long. It just hits the highlights like Reader's Digest. There's no action required. It's just good reading. And there's these other secret meetings we have where it's just a bunch of us with time. And we sit around and congratulate each other. <laughs> and really clap hard for each other. And we record each other and play it back and clap again. It hasn't happened. Hasn't happened. We recently started a meeting. I'm, my home group is the Thumpers Men Stag Meeting of Winslow, Arizona. If you're ever in town and you're a man, if it's an emergency and you're a woman, come on over. 
I have one of the highest commitments in that group. It's one of the most important commitments of that group. I am the coffee maker. Can't have a meeting without me. Got to have the coffee maker. But that's what I do. Nothing's changed. It's beautiful to be here, and there is one thing that I wanted to share with you. At that moment in my life when I lost my son, like I said, it's still a painful thing. Don't get me wrong. I have some old football injuries, and I have a bad knee, and now my other knee is going out, right? I walk kind of funny when you watch me. I was walking on a cane yesterday, but I told the guys that were with me, I'll be damned if I'm walking into this thing with a cane. And it bothers me every once in a while, and it hurts. I can't go play ball like I used to. I can't. There's a lot of things I can't do anymore. But there's still a lot of things that I can do. I can still walk. I can still get around. It doesn't affect my life that much. It's just a, it's just a scar that will be with me. And the loss of my son is something that's never going to go away. It's never not going to be not painful. He was my son, and he was beautiful. He was beautiful. And I miss him every day. I miss him every day. I know he's at peace now. I know that he doesn't have to fight this thing anymore. And I know he's okay. But I'm so excited, and I'm so grateful that my son Stacy is here today, and he has 26 days of sobriety. I love you. Don't tell me there's not a God. Don't tell me that this deal doesn't work. It does just fine. And don't let any old timers tell you that you young people aren't doing this thing right. Hey, Alcoholics Anonymous is alive and well here. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.